Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Take your Bibles, open them to 1 Kings chapter 20. 1 Kings chapter 20 in a Bible study that I've entitled Facing Our Unrelenting Enemy. Because God in his mercy has dealt very gently with the northern kingdom in his desire to move his people back to himself. When God is patient with you, when God is patient with me, it is not the approval of our sin. It's not the approval of our disobedience. It is patience that will lead us back to himself. Paul would put it this way. He would say when he wrote to the, to the Romans, he says, don't you know that it's the goodness of God that leads to repentance? It's the goodness of God and the patience of God wanting to move. And we see that with the northern kingdom. We learn of the faithfulness of God through the life of Elijah, the prophet, a man just like us, used in incredible ways to speak to Ahab and Jezebel. Elijah's ministry comes to a close as he tosses his mantle on Elisha, his successor. And then they drop off the focus for about six years. And we pick up now in verse 1 with some insights during that time. Verse one, now Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his forces together. There were 32 kings with him, with horses and chariots, and he went up and besieged Samaria and made war against it. Then he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, thus says Ben-Hadad, your silver and your gold are mine. Your loveliest wives and children are mine. And the king of Israel answered and said, My lord, O king, just as you say, and I and all that I have are yours. Then the messengers came back and said, Thus speaks Ben-Hadad, saying, Indeed I have sent to you, saying, You shall deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. But I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search out your house and the houses of your servants, and it shall be that whatever is pleasant in your eyes they shall put in their hands and take it. Now Samaria was a part of Israel and is being attacked by Syria. And the king declares to Ahab, I mean, it's pretty bold, isn't it? He says in verse 3, your silver and gold are, what does your Bible say? Mine. Your loveliest wives and children are mine. I mean, that's pretty bold. What belongs to you is mine, the king says. And what is the response in verse 4? King Ahab says, no way. These belong to the almighty God. You're not getting any of it. No. His answer was, whatever you want, just as you say. Ahab is hoping to get out of the battle by giving up what belongs to God. What belongs to God? The stuff of the kingdom was not the king's. Just like the stuff of your life is not your stuff. It belongs to God. It came from God. It's going back to God. You came into this world naked and that's how you're going out. You're taking nothing with you. The Bible says every good and perfect gift comes to us from the Father of lights above. Nothing is of our own accord. It all belongs to God. Now, this is an interesting exchange here because it's military. So let's keep that in mind. This is a military conquest. This is a king with armies telling another king, another nation, I'm coming to take everything that you want. Even like you see some of the squabbling going on among nations today in our own day and age. 
the, the kind of rhetoric and the types of things that are being said that may or may not come to pass, but they're, they're flexing their muscles with one another. It's not unlike the geopolitical things that we see on the horizon today with Israel, with neighbors, North Korea, Iran. Leaders on behalf of their countries threatening to destroy and to steal and to take away. And yet, let's not get caught up so much in the physical, but rather let's look at the spiritual for a moment because King Hadad, Ben-Hadad, he becomes a type of the devil. And isn't it true that the devil in the demonic realm will often come to you and say, what is yours belongs to me. He, he, claim, he puts claim on our children. You know, the, the devil thinks he owns our kids. He, the devil thinks he owns our broken marriage. The devil thinks he owns the leadership of a church, or he thinks he owns, quite frankly, he's a squatter on this world, and he thinks he owns the world. And he comes to very, very definitely that what's yours is mine. What's yours is mine. And he begins to lie to us, and he begins to accuse us, and he begins to discourage us. The devil thinks he owns you, and I'm here to declare to you today that the devil does not own you. You've been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. And the devil doesn't own your kids, the devil doesn't own your marriage, the devil doesn't own your calling, the devil doesn't own anything about you. But man, does he squat. And he pretends, and he lies, and he accuses. Remember, jot it down, I won't ask you to turn, I wanna read it to you, Luke chapter 22. Remember that exchange between Jesus and Simon Peter. Jesus was giving Simon some information. He, he was giving Simon some, some insight into the spiritual realm that he didn't have. And he's recorded a saying in verse 31 of Luke 22. Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you. Does that sound familiar? Satan has asked for you. That he might sift you as wheat. And Jesus' answer was, but I've prayed for you that your faith should not fail. But when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. It's an interesting response. I think if Jesus came to me and looked me in the eye and said, hey, Ed, the devil's asked for you, my next question would, would be, well, what did you say? <laughs> yes or no? Because that's not really answered. He said, but I prayed for you that your faith will not fail, that the enemy's gonna come up against him going to attack him, test his faith. So that Peter, we know, in his life, he had great failure, he had great restoration, but later on in 1 Peter 5, he, ex he exhorts us, Peter does, later on after his restoration, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. I think he's talking from personal experience here. I don't think he's speaking theory. The devil's walking around, I've met him. He sifted me like wheat, come after me. The answer was in verse nine, 1 Peter five, resist him steadfast in the faith. Ties well together with what Jesus said, knowing that the same sufferings you're experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Notice, pick up in verse seven now. Then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, notice please and see how this man seeks trouble. He sent to me for my wives, my children, my silver, my gold, and I did not deny him. And all the elders and the people said to him, listen, you might even want to mark this, do not listen or consent. Don't do it. That's what they're telling him. Hey, the, the enemy's come and he's asked for everything. What should I do? Don't do it. And you need that stern voice in your life at times. Don't listen, 
So don't listen to the lies and definitely don't consent to it. Therefore, verse nine, he sent to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, tell my lord the king all that you sent for to your servant the first time I will do, but this one thing I cannot do. Compromiser is what he is. And the messengers departed and brought back word to him. Then Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, the gods do so to me and more also if enough dust is left of Samaria for a handful for each of the people who follow me. So the king of Israel answered and said, tell him, let not the one who puts on his armor boast like the one who takes it off. And it happened when Ben-Hadad heard this message that he and the kings were drinking at the command post and he said to his servants, get ready. And they got ready to attack the city. This is encouraging. There were still people in the, in the condition of the nation and the condition of King Ahab and the condition of rotten Jezebel. There are still spiritual people in the land speaking forth the word of God even to kings. And if there were spiritual people in the world speaking to kings then, you can be assured that God has reserved spiritual people to speak into your life even after you make a bad mistake. Many times before, but even after. What a foolish thing to say. Oh, come and get everything. It's all just, just don't, t- don't, destroy, don't destroy our country. Don't take away everything. Just take away some of it. And I love this. Don't listen or consent. Some of you need to write that on your mirror in the morning just so you're reminded not to listen to the lies of the enemy. Don't listen to him and don't consent to it. Don't listen to him and don't consent to it. It it might apply to somebody in your life that has great influence but isn't speaking the truth to you. Don't listen to them and don't consent to it. Don't listen to the accusations. Don't listen to the gossip. Don't don't listen. Don't consent. Because it can be a bit tiring, I have to say. This unending tack in the spiritual realm can be exhausting. Many people will refer to it as being exhausted and and really the only issue is the exhausting part of it is the spiritual battle that we're in. But today we learn, even in Ahab's life, to be encouraged. Jesus is praying. We're resisting. The devil has a short time and he knows it. Don't cave in like Ahab, thinking that you'll appease the enemy. You will never appease the enemy. You will never be able to pay the price that he is requesting. Because he's requesting it all. To kill, steal, and ultimately destroy. Don't give up your kids on the altar of appeasement. Don't give up your marriage on the altar of appeasement. Don't don't give up your home and your dedication and your years of walking with the Lord and all the years that your parents poured into you, everything that God has shown you, your radical conversion, your victory, the the grace that he's shown you, how paid, don't give it up because of a few little threats from the enemy. A few little threats, put up a fight. The enemy of God is never appeased or satisfied. He will take anything that we willingly give him. You know, he comes and says, I'm gonna take everything, and what do we say? Well, we'll give you a little bit. He'll take it, but don't think he's gonna stop because once he sees weakness in you, he's going after the rest. I mean, it's very basic. We need people in our lives who will look us in the eye when we're not looking out for ourselves. We we need people in our lives who are looking out for us when we're not looking out for ourselves. That'll look us in the eye and say, don't listen, don't consent. Turn to your neighbor and just tell somebody, don't listen and don't consent. Go ahead, say it out loud. Tell them, look them in the eye. And they're arguing with you right now, so say it again. Don't listen, don't consent. Okay, say I'm sorry now before being so mean. 
but pastor said so. No, I didn't tell you to be mean. I said, do it in love. I was hoping you were going to hug. I was hoping you're going to be smiling. Don't listen. Don't consent. But it's true. Isn't that one of the greatest errors that we make in life as we listen to the lies of the enemy? And the more that we listen to the lies of the enemy, the closer we are to fall. Consent means agree, to give in. And isn't that, if you trace back so many of the failures that we made in sin, it's been because we disobeyed these simple words. Simple. Don't listen, don't consent. We need people in our lives. You know what happens when we have people in our lives is that, that are speaking the truth. If, if we're not in tune with the Spirit, we push people like that out of our lives. I have, unfortunately or fortunately, I would say fortunately on the side of the Lord, but to experience it, it can be difficult at times. I have a gift of exhortation. Not everybody likes that. Not everybody likes to hear that. Of course, over the years, I've had to learn to change delivery. I've had to learn how to deliver for the sake of reception. I mean, I'm, I'm still learning after many years of exercising this gift. And I can look back in some episodes in my life where God has improved that in my life and improved the delivery and changed my personality in, in such that I could deliver it. But I have seen, also seen over the years people distance themselves from me because if they come to me, and my wife as well, if, they come, if you come to us, just understand you're going to get the answer you're looking for. You're going to get it. If I hope, I hope that I'm hearing from the Lord and that I'm listening to Him and, the, and you're going to get it and most likely, you're not going to like it because it's going to require change on your part or repentance. It's, it's going to be helping us, you know, when you come and sit down with a pastor, you come sit down with a leader or a friend, you're, you're going to have a Bible open. You know what the Bible is? The Bible reveals itself as a mirror. So basically, if we're doing our job right and we're being used of the Lord, you're going to see yourself in light of the scriptures. And you know how it is when you wake up in the morning, you see yourself. It's not the prettiest picture in the morning. Otherwise, there'd be no makeup industry. There would be no hair straightening ministry, you know, industry. There'd be no toothpaste like all the industries, all that stuff that's in your, there would be no need for that if the mirror revealed perfection. And so the Bible, when you're opening it up, you go, you know what, this is the issue. No, that's not the, no, this is the issue. Go ahead and take it to the Lord. And I, just sent a, I just sent a text to a brother on one of the coasts today saying, if the Lord is leading you to do this, you must do it. And he wants me to make the decision for him sometimes, I think, but I'm not going to make the decision for him. I'm going to point him to the Lord who's already revealed to him what he's supposed to be doing. And so people get mad. They get mad. They leave the church. I can't believe what kind of church. What are they doing? Welcome there. Pastor Ed, Pastor Ed, he's so mean. He told me to wait two more weeks. Well, what's mean about that? I don't want to wait two more weeks. You'd be amazed how many excuses we make for our sinful behavior and then it just takes a person, don't listen and don't consent. Well, you're not very nice. And then they go down to the next church. And then they get counsel there, same thing. You go, oh man, they must have been talking to Ed. No, they weren't. <laughs> and then what happens, I've seen this time and time again, they finally land in a church where the pastor or leadership agrees with them. And it ends in disaster. And then pride kicks in. And because pride kicks in, 
we don't see them anymore. They don't actually come to the place that could really help them because we've invested in our life for years and years and years. And we've invested through them. We've worked them. And, and you know, I told you, you're not going to get that. You're not going to get that, hey, you're, I told you so. But you are going to get, hey, let's go back to the word that God gave you and let's talk about why you avoided it. Don't listen. Don't consent. We need people in our lives, even if we don't like it, to tell us the truth. Proverbs 27, 17, as iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. Proverbs 25, 11, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. Proverbs 27, 9, the heartfelt counsel of a friend is as sweet as perfume and incense. Never abandon a friend, either yours or your father's. Then in your time of need, you won't have to ask your relatives for assistance. It's better to go to a neighbor than to a relative who lives far away. New Living Translation. I like that. Never abandon your friend. That goes both ways. Verse 13 now. Suddenly, a prophet approached Ahab, king of Israel, saying, Thus says the Lord... Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I'll deliver it into your hand today, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So Ahab said, by whom? And he said, thus says the Lord, Jehovah, by the young leaders of the provinces. And he said, who will set the battle in order? And he answered, you. I mean, this is, if you'd like to write in your Bibles, right next to verse 14, grace. God is being so gracious that he would still deal with Ahab even as he is so horribly wicked and resistant and disobedient. God is so faithful. He's going to help him still. Verse 15, he mustered the young leaders of the provinces. And there were 232. And after them, he mustered all the people, all the children of Israel, 7,000. So they went out at noon. Meanwhile, Ben-Hadad and the 32 kings helping him were getting drunk at the command post. The young leaders of the provinces went out first and Ben-Hadad sent out a patrol and they told him saying, men are coming out of Samaria. And he said, if they come out for peace, take them alive. If they come out for war, take them alive. And these young leaders of the provinces went out of the city with the army which followed them and each one killed his man so the Syrians fled and Israel pursued them. And Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, escaped on a horse with a cavalry. And then the king of Israel went out and attacked with horses and chariots and killed the Syrians with a great slaughter. Such grace. God is so gracious here to Ahab. Even though Ahab is not cooperating with the plan of God, listen, God still has a purpose and a plan to work out. He can supersede even our own disobedience using what? All working all things together for the good to accomplish his plan. And he reveals to him the plan that he has to spare him. Now, I want you to see this. We can't just overlook it in verse 16. And we'll give you a different angle here in this warning about drunkenness. It says, meanwhile, Ben-Hadad, the king, and 32 other kings, and don't think of kings of huge, huge kingdoms. These are, these are little city-states that were run by kings, little tribes, of hundreds and thousands, but, but still nonetheless. Don't, don't think of massive millions of millions of people of kingdoms. So you got 32 kings here, and they were helping him get drunk. Now those are the kind of people you don't want to be surrounded by. Helping him get drunk. Now, we see the folly of drunkenness, 
and how vulnerable a person is, especially a leader king, when he's drunk. In Proverbs chapter 31, verse 4, it says, It's not for kings, O Lemuel, it's not for kings to drink wine, nor princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. The loss of Ben-Hadad, God didn't have to include this. Didn't have to include this little party he had with 32 of his kings getting drunk, but he did. Because he wants us to associate failure with drunkenness. He wants us to associate exactly what we learn. It's not wise for kings, believer or unbeliever alike, to get drunk. So I, I thought about this for a second. Leadership. What, what, is the, what is the center location in our country of who we consider the leaders of our country? Where is it? Washington, D.C. So check this out. According to a 2014 Washington Post article titled, where the biggest beer, wine, and liquor drinkers live in the U.S., we learn, according to that survey, that Washington, D.C. is the definitive wine capital of the United States of America. Not in Napa Valley, and we need to be praying for them up there as as all of that area is being ravaged and homes are being lost. It's not in the wine country. What's the most per capita consumption of wine in our country? right at the center of leadership, completely against the wisdom of God. And you know what I'm finding in these latter days? That casual, even leading to drunkenness, wine, beer, whiskey, uh, whatever liquor is now in the leadership centers of churches. That leaders have used this liberty to now bring something that the Bible clearly says it's not wise. And so what does that mean? That means that foolishness is entering into the leadership of many churches now. And what's happening? You know, we're foolish enough without making it worse. And the Bible just wants us to see. If you you come to a differing conclusion, I respect that. Just make sure it's biblical. And, and perhaps you can build, you know, you're listening on the radio right now or watching and you're like, Ed, I can't believe, oh, you're legalistic, oh. <laughs> Listen, send me an email. Make me a biblical argument based on, on here with Ben-Hadad that it was smart for him to get drunk. Just do it. I'm open. So I can't believe you're reading the Bible wrong. Ben-Hadad was really smart to get drunk at this time with 32 other kings. Not according to my Bible, Because it says in verse 20, each one killed his man, so the Syrians fled. Israel pursued them, and Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, escaped on a horse. It didn't do him well at all. Consider the mercy of grace of God here for a moment. Ahab, totally wicked, still receiving help from God. There's not one redeeming feature in this man. He is corrupt to the core. He's led the nation away from God in corruption, and still God in his grace deals with him. The long-suffering of God, I marvel at it. I don't marvel at it so much in Ahab's life, although I do. I've got someone else that I truly marvel at the long-suffering and the patience of God, and that's in my life. I marvel how patient. God is, I find this to be true, maybe you would do in your own life, but God is more patient with me than I am with myself at times. 
that he's demonstrated this agape love of long-suffering with me far more than I give my own self or, or my wife or my kids. I marvel at the long-suffering of God. I marvel at his patience. Here's a man that's turned his back on God over and over again. A man that set himself against God and yet he's so patient in dealing with him. Gives him chance after chance after chance and even gives him the victory. Notice verse 22 now, or excuse me, verse yeah, 22. And the prophet came to the king of Israel and said, go strengthen yourself and take note and see what you should do. For in the spring of the year, the king of Syria will come up against you. So now he's warned. It's going to happen again. God is now warning him. He says, the servants of the king of Syria, verse 23, said to him, their gods are the gods of the hills. Therefore, they were stronger than we. But if we fight against them in the plain, then surely we'll be stronger than they. So what does the devil do when he doesn't get you in one way? He changes strategies. So, so basically what the king is saying in a military stat, strat, status is that we took them high, but, but their God is strong in the high. So we were, we were failures in the high, so let's go low. Let's take them low down in the plains. And so do this thing, verse 24. Dismiss the kings, each from his position, but put captains in their places, and you shall muster an army like an army that you have lost, horse for horse, chariot for chariot. Then we'll fight against them in the plain. Surely we'll be stronger than they, and he listened to their voice and did so. So it was in the spring of the year that Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the children of Israel were mustered and given provisions, and they went against them. The children of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats where the Syrians filled the countryside. Basically a very uh, strong description, uh, a picture of being completely outnumbered. As they serve the, as the Syrians surveyed their losses, they blame it on the gods, little g. And they're going to take the battle to the plains. Israel's outnumbered. It doesn't look good. Verse 28, then a man of God came and spoke to the king of Israel and said, thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said the Lord is the God of the hills, but he's not the God of the valleys. Therefore, I'll deliver all this great multitude into your hand and you shall know that I am the Lord. It's like God saying, they don't think I'm the God of the plains. I'm going to show them the God of the plains. And through that victory, Ahab, you're going to know that I'm God. I'm going to prove to the Syrians that I'm the God where I'm God everywhere, that they're completely wrong. But the motive, notice, is, is not for Ahab's sake for victory. It's for Ahab's sake for brokenness. You're going to know that I'm God. There will be no question. As the Bible says, there will be no one is going to be, the Bible says in Romans that everyone will be without excuse before God. So will Ahab. Notice, he says, where did I leave off? Verse 29. And they encamped opposite each other for seven days. So it was that on the seventh day the battle was joined. The children of Israel killed 100,000 foot soldiers of the Syrians in one day. But the rest fled to Aphek into the city. And then a wall fell on 27,000 of the men who were left. And Ben-Hadad fled, went into the city, into an inner chamber. This is victory. Thousands fall down. Even as the odds were against them physically, the Lord enables them to kill 100,000 Syrians. Why? Because God is greater than the enemy. And he brings victory. Receive that truth today. God is our victory. Is he, in the victory. is he our victory in the hills? How about in the valleys? 
Of course. The mountaintops, we, we have victory. Down in the valleys, we have victory. You know, that's where the, the psalmist learned the victory. Victory is sometimes different in the valley, right? Because though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Why? Because the, the shepherd is with us. Victory looks different. But you can rest assured that God is our victory. We don't always feel that way, and that's a problem. Because we can yield to our feelings and only see failure. And our feelings, they need to be submitted to the truth of God's word. They're intimidated, they're outnumbered, and yet God's still faithful. Our faithful God allows us to go through the valleys of life as a testimony to the world that he's not only the God of the good times, but also the God of the low times. It's hard to accept at times, I think. The world sees the faithfulness of God through the saint who endures difficult times and dark days and deep searing pain. That's why Jesus, he taught us something different. Uh, He talked about the ruler of the world that's coming in John 14. He says he has nothing in me but that the world may know that I love the Father. So I do. So that the world may know. You know, you're going to be in the valley. If you're not in the valley right now, you're going to be in the valley soon enough. It's part of the Christian life. It's part of the Christian experience. Truly, the longer I'm around believers and unbelievers alike, quite frankly, it seems as if the valley can be longer than the mountaintops at times in their lives. That not every trial is so quick to begin, so quick to end. Some trials have a long middle. And many are in the long middle of a trial, what we might call the plains or the valleys or the lowlands. Yeah, the mountaintops often speak to us of intimacy and closeness with God. The mountaintops often speak to us of victory and the presence of God. We learned that with Elijah. What did he do to the prophets of Baal? He took care of them where? On Mount Carmel. But at the word of Jezebel, he went from the Mount of Victory down to the caves, to the lowlands, to the caves of defeat in an instant. And while we wish and desire that our trials had a definite beginning and a short middle and a quick end, it's not always so. And yet God is using the valleys of our lives not only to develop this. Let me give you a couple things to remember in the valley, okay? A couple things, just really three things that I want to give you that can plant in our hearts today just so you know you're not alone. Number one, in the valleys, Jesus the good shepherd is there with you. Psalm 23, verse 4. He is with us, the psalmist says. Number two, in the valleys, God is revealing himself to you. You're learning a new aspect of who God is as you cry out to him. That's what happened with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They learned of the power and the delivering power of God through their life of no compromise. And the world was watching. Like God was revealing himself to you, but also through you. Because remember, Nebuchadnezzar, it says in Daniel chapter 3, verse 28, he spoke and said, Blessed be the God Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Blessed be that God. This is the crazy cat that threw him in the fire to begin with. And through the faithfulness of God, bless the God of those guys. Bless the God of those guys. And then thirdly, God is revealing yourself to you in the valley. We don't always like that, do we? He's showing us ourselves. Do you only follow God in the good times? Well, you'll find that out in the valley. 
Do you turn your back on God in the tough times? <laughs> you're going to find that out in the valley. Like when you're on the mountaintop, do you turn your back on God when it gets tough? No, hallelujah, it's great up here. Uh, it's, the altitude's a little high, but man, I'm so close to God. It's so beautiful. Of course we're going to say, I'd never deny you. If everyone denies you, I'll never deny you. And then he lets you come down into the plane and say, oh, okay. And then you find out even if you don't verbally deny him in your heart, you're mad at him. You're disappointed in what God has you doing right now. You're not happy. You're frustrated. You're jealous. You're envious. You're covet. I mean, all kinds of nastiness gets revealed to us in the valley. Not their nastiness, our nastiness. And so what does the Lord do? Our faithful God, like the silversmith and the goldsmith, he turns the heat up. He refines us. The impurities come to the surface. We repent. We offer them. He skims them off the top, and he's purifying our lives. Yes, he uses the mountaintops, but oh, does he use the valleys. Now, notice verse 31. And his servant said to him, Look now, we've heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Please let us put sackcloth around our waist and ropes around our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he'll spare your life. So they wore sackcloth around their waist and put robes around their heads and came to the king of Israel and said, your servant Ben-Hadad says, please let me live. Isn't this the knucklehead that said, what is yours is mine? And now what is he? Let me live, let me live. The Lord can turn things around so quickly, man. It's so good. Some of you, you want the Lord to turn something around really quickly, don't you? Anybody got an amen for that? Take this home. Ben-Hadad in just a few verses and one battle of defeat. The enemy defeated him in two battles, really. And now what is he saying? Oh, can you please spare my life? And he says, is he still alive? He's my brother. And now the men were diligently watching to see whether any sign of mercy would come from him. And they quickly grasped at his word and said, your, young, your brother Ben-Hadad. And so he said, go bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came out to him, and he had, come, he had him come up into the chariot, and Ben-Hadad said to him, the cities which my father took from your father I'll restore, and you may set up marketplaces for yourself in Damascus as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, I'll send you away with this treaty. And you say, what? You're making a treaty with the enemy? Haven't you learned, Ahab? <sighs> he sends him away with the treaty. And he made a treaty with him and sent him away. Verse 35. Now a certain man of the sons of the prophet said to the neighbor by the word of the Lord, strike me please. And the man refused to strike him. And he said to him, because you've not obeyed the voice of the Lord, surely as soon as you depart from me, a lion shall kill you. So here's the moral of the story. If a prophet comes to you and says, strike me, strike him. <laughs> pretty cool. It's a pretty cool true story. And as soon as he left, well, it's not cool. The lion part's not cool. But as soon as he left, a lion found him and killed him. And he found another man and said, strike me, please. So the man struck him, inflicting a wound. Then the prophet departed and waited for the king by the road and disguised himself with a bandage over his eyes. And as the king passed by, he cried out to the king and said, your servant went out in the midst of battle. And there a man came over and brought a man to me and said, guard this man. If by any means he is missing, your life shall be spared. Or else you shall pay a, or excuse me, your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. And while your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. And the king of Israel said to him, so shall your judgment be, yourself have decided it. 
Then he hastened to take the bandage away from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And he said to him, Thus says the Lord, Because you have let slip out of your hand a man who I appointed to utter destruction, therefore your life shall go for his life and your people for his people. By the way, that's the reward for compromise. You lose your life. It may not be your life like physically. You might lose your life. You might lose your reputation. You might lose your influence. You might lose the effectiveness of the anointing of God in your life. You might lose years where God will have to come to you and say, I'll restore to you years that the locusts eaten. But here, you know, he's not blessed. Compromise did not bless Ahab. And the king of Israel went to his house, sullen and displeased, and came to Samaria. Isn't it interesting that trials and pressure reveal what's inside of us? It, it's, if you were driving with me, uh, to the office, but you didn't know what I put in my cup, uh, what I put in my little thermos. I mean, you could guess, but you don't know. Um, I could tell you anything's in there, and you wouldn't know because you can't see through it. It's got a top on it, and it's got a little hole to drink through. But if I drive a little too fast, or I hit some construction or something, and that little cup bounces and spills all over me, you're going to know exactly what's inside. I'm going to remember what's exactly inside. It's going to burn me. It's my latte that I had made extra hot. And there I am driving along. Everything's fine. You don't know what's inside until you hit a bump in the road. And that's how life is. The bump in the road did not put anything into that cup. It didn't create what was inside of it. It just revealed it. And that's what trials do in our lives. Trials don't create in us the ugliness that gets revealed. As I've mentioned many times before, you can use all sorts of different uh, illustrations. Sometimes I use a, a hammer hitting your thumb, but let's go to the ladies, and you're sewing, and you're sewing, choo, 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 you're crafting, making some for Pinterest, whatever you're doing, and then there you are, and you stab your thumb with that big needle. And out of your dainty little mouth comes the wickedest F-bomb that you never even said F-bombs when you weren't saved. But you might have been reading something or listening to something or watching something that's been putting all that in and you've been holding it in and you've been holding it in and you stabbed yourself and you scream and the kids said, what? <laughs> and now you got to explain yourself and as you're sitting down and then they come, your husband comes home, I don't know what happened. You know, I would have never said it, honey. I would have never, that stupid needle would never have never been on my, I would have never said that word if I wouldn't have pushed no 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 the thing is is you've been saying it in your heart and your mind for a long time it's inside of you and the stabbing of your thumb is what brought it out you can't blame the needle blame yourself somehow that word's been harboring in your heart of course, I use a great exaggeration, but you can fill in the blanks of what that might be. Perhaps that illustration isn't such an exaggeration for some among us. But the reality is this. What's inside of you will come out, both bad and good. And it's the bumps in life and the trials and temptations and difficulties of life that will reveal. Now, you have to put that in context of not condemnation, but the long-suffering of God. I mean, if God is long-suffering with wicked Ahab, I love what Paul says when he writes to the Romans. He says, you know, if God did so much for us when we were sinning and rebelling against him, how much more in Christ? How much more in Christ? How much more by faith in Jesus? 
And so as things are revealed in our lives, it's not for the purpose of, of destruction of our lives, but rather for the purpose of the destruction of our flesh and our flesh life. There is no shortcut to spiritual maturity. Everyone on the road to spiritual maturity will have days or months or even years on the valley of bumps and bruises, trials and tribulations. And when it reveals things in us, you won't always be happy, but you need not be condemned. Syria just wants to save their own life They'll take, just like the enemy, he'll take whatever you'll give him. But Ahab's priority in life was status and power and ruling, rulership. It's one of the main reasons he failed miserably, and God will not deal with any of that. Which opens the door for this interesting thing with the prophet. You know, hit me, I don't want to hit you. Hit me or a lion's going to get you. I'm not hitting you. Lion got you. And then he got the next guy, and it was a visual. God, and what, what, what tells me, just like with David and his friend Nathan, is that God will send to us messenger after messenger into our lives so that our sin might be acknowledged, confessed, and forsaken. And if the Lord's been speaking to you about a known sin in your life, don't be like an Ahab making excuses. Just deal with it. Repent. Forsake it. Come clean. Forsake your sin and live. And maybe you need to get right with him today. That's why you're listening. Realize this, God is not mad at you. He loves you. The wrath and anger of God was poured upon his son, Jesus Christ. Now, it might feel like he's mad at you because you don't have a relationship with him. But he loves you. And that love has been proven on the cross. He hates the sin in your life and he hates what sin is doing in your life. But the devil is your enemy, not God. He's your unrelenting enemy. And he's searching for you. Remember Jesus told the story of a shepherd who had a hundred sheep and one went astray. What did the shepherd do? He left the 99 and he searched for it until he found it. He wrapped it around his neck and brought it back home rejoicing. That's God's attitude towards you. That parable is not for us primarily. It's a picture of God. By application, it's for us. But really what Jesus is trying to show us is the love of the Father for you. That he'll leave the 99 for you. For you. Time and time again. Time and time again. I just got word tonight of a disastrous ending to a brother that used to sit right there. As a matter of fact, that was the last time that I saw his face. He was sitting right here not too many months ago. And I personally and many of the guys here poured hours and hours and hours, days, and I mean, he was here off and on for many, many years, dating back to the very beginning of when we moved into this facility for at least nine years, and he would come in and out and in and out, and we'd reach out to him, and we'd see him around town, and, and just recently, the, his life took a disastrous turn, and he's no longer with us. You know, the the reality is, is that no one, none of us really know what a day will bring. And none of us really know how we're going to enter into eternity. But I do know this. I, I do know this, and all of us can know this. I don't want to enter into eternity and compromise. I don't want to be a person that's in and out with the things of God, coming and going, but rather to press on, like Paul said, to press on toward the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 
it matters. Your life matters. The ministry and fruit of your life matter. And like the shepherd, he's going to go after you. He's going to leave the 99 to go after you, to pursue you. He's trying to help you. He knows that if you continue on in the way that you're going, that you're going to be miserable. He knows that if you continue on the way that you're going, you're going to make a mess out of your life and probably of those that you love. Not only was this man ending in disastrous, but so was a person next to him. I mean, end in disaster. Heartbreaking disaster. And God is just trying to help you. Don't run from him, run to him. And if you're not sure Christ is living in your life today, then I encourage you to respond to the invitation that I'm going to give in just a moment. Make your life right with God. If you've known God at one time, listening in on the radio, listening to King Ahab, wondering what a you know, many thousand, four or five thousand year text means in your life, I'll tell you what it means in your life. Don't be an Ahab. Ahabs are still alive today. Don't compromise. Go thorough, complete, obey. And now, you know, not even like Ahab, you don't, you, you have the strength of God inside of you. You don't have to stir up and muster up as much strength to, to give the old college try to obey. God is inside of you wanting you to obey, empowering you to obey, giving you both the desire to will and to do for his good pleasure. And I know if God allows me another year, two, 18 years, whatever he has for me in ministry, I'll see more disaster with my own eyes. I'll receive a text message with a notification like I did on this particular person. I'll pull up a newspaper article. I'll receive information from a police officer. I will, I I know that if, it's heartbreaking to know that there'll be more disaster, there'll be more confessions, there'll be more regret, there'll be more, but I do, I can say this, as a pastor and a friend on my watch, I want it to be as little as possible. And so I'm committed to teaching you the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, to praying for you, to interceding for you. I'm committed to being surrounded by men and women that love Jesus Christ, that together will serve you, will minister to you, but ultimately, we we won't make you dependent upon us, we will point you to the Lord and cause you to be dependent upon Him who is with you and available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Available to minister to you and serve you, and that will be, sometimes people get mad at that, you go, no, 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 I want want you to help me, and I want you to help me so-and-so, I want you to help me, and it's like, we will, here's your help, get right with God. No, no, you don't understand. You got, no, no, I'm telling you, you don't understand. If you get right with God, the power of God that resides in you, you cooperate with him, he'll live his life through you, and there'll be victory day by day and moment by moment. Don't be an Ahab. God's not your enemy. The devil's your enemy. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, and victory is yours. So, Father, I pray that as we turn our hearts and attention toward, uh, you know, Considering the truths in this chapter, I pray that and ask you, God, that we would have a real relationship with you uh, that is meaningful and committed. Our kids need it. Our grandkids need it. Uh, Our grandmas and grandpas need it. Our parents need it. Lord, we can't just be messing around and goofing off with religion. We'll become like an Ahab. And still, Ahab was still a king, and he still messed things up. And so, Lord, would would you pour out your Holy Spirit upon us? Fill us afresh with your your spirit. 
and, and do a work that only you can do among us, that you might have the victory in our lives. And if you're here today and you say, Ed, I need to get my life right with God, let's just take care of that right now. And I'm inviting you to repent of your sins and get right with God, that that's, that, that's the message for you. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.